Thanks, Anesh. Good morning, everyone. Great to be back with you after two weeks of being out serving in other contexts. And can you believe it? After two and a half years of COVID and coming to church Sunday after Sunday with a mask on, waiting, praying for two and a half years to worship together without a mask on, I missed the first Sunday back with all of you, right? Uh, that was a real disappointment to me. But here we are, and getting to worship together and being able to praise and honor and glorify God with no mask restrictions. I'm absolutely loving it, right? I do want to add my voice to just uh, those who said thank you to the guys serving in the holiday club, to Mike, to Jane, to the army of teenagers that participated in making it a real special moment for all these young lives. For me as a dad, it was a, a high moment. My eldest daughter serving in, in a holiday club moment for the first time. And I remember those Scripture Union holiday clubs, summer specials and the April holiday clubs that I used to do when I was a teenager. And it feels like the passing of a baton to the next generation. So my heart was so warm just by some of those dynamics going on. And a brilliant way for us as a church to be a servant church to many beyond us again. So once again, thank you to everyone who was involved in that. Today, we're going to continue in the book of James. If you haven't been with us, we're in week 11 this Sunday of working through the book of James, and we're just working through the text. And I love it as a community when we allow the Word of God to do the work of God in our lives just as we come to it. And so week after week, we kind of take a section, work through it, what would God want to say, and then we move through to the next section. And, and the book continues continues to make sure that we are doing the deep work of assessing our way of life, our faith, and making sure that our way of life is in line with the faith that we proclaim. And James, in, in many ways, is a pretty hard-hitting book, but we aren't shying away from that. Last two weeks, Josh served us so well in dealing with some of these hard-hitting texts and, and allowing God's work, I mean, word to once again challenge us and be alive to us. And today I'd love, I'd love to say, hey, James is turning the corner. He's going to come around the corner. He's just going to give everyone a hug and tell you how fantastic you are. But that's not true, right? You just heard the, the scripture read, and again, it's, it's hard-hitting. And the main points of much of this book is actually the main points of what we're dealing with here today. In summary, that faith, faith without works is dead. And the title for today's sermon is along those lines, A Faith That Works. Church, wouldn't we love it to see a, a community full of people whose faith is outworked and at work, whose faith is actually being lived out in so many ways? And doesn't it just break our hearts when people say one thing about what they believe and where they place their faith, but then it becomes so clearly evident to us that their faith is in other things, and, and the distance between those two realities can be heartbreaking to us. Is that not true? Is that not our experience of, of so many, even of our own lives at times? James starts this new paragraph, and, and he's, he's got this big leading question. 
that, that opens up exactly where he's going. And, and the leading question is this, what good is it? What good is it? What good is it, verse 14, my brothers and sisters, if someone says he has faith, but he, has, but he does not have works? Faith, but no works, what good is it? Now, I am a parent to teenage children, right? This question, what good is it, comes up in my house from time to time. When I walk into the room and I say, this laundry basket over here, what good is it? And, and this towel rack, this little hook on the back of your door, what good is it? My worst, you come into the bathroom, there's no white gold on that beautiful little springy contraption. And you say, how is it that this beautifully designed springy contraption can only be mastered by parents? What good is it? <laughs> the reality of what good is it is it's kind of going, what is the point? What is the point if, if it's meant to be like this, but it is like this, what good is it? That's what James is saying, right? And granted, he's aiming a little higher than laundry baskets and toilet roll holders. What good is it, my brothers and sisters, if someone says he has faith, but he has faith, but does not have works? James is questioning the purpose, the point of saying we have faith if there's no evidence or no outworking of that, no reality to that in our lives. It's like ticking the census box, Christian, and then that's the kind of full extent of our Christianity. See, James calls us in these verses to stop and consider. And I think there's, there's three potential kind of outcomes. James doesn't spell them out exactly like this, but as I've worked through the text, I think there's three potential outcomes, one of which is gonna be most suited to you this morning. So I want you to think about this. As we work through this text, one of three things can possibly happen. Which one is, is most appropriate in your life? Either, as we read this, you recognize, this isn't really speaking to me, I'm going strong, I'm doing well. I have faith, and that faith is active and outworked and outlived in my lives, in my life. And, and therefore, I can just take this as a reminder and a fresh encouragement. Or maybe second option, you realize that if you're honest, you need a kick in the pants this morning, right? Because you have a genuine faith, but maybe there's a reality that that has in some way become idle or grown cold or lost focus. And you can take the charge of James and the, the charge of Christ, the head of the church, to you this morning and say, yes, Lord, I will respond. Won't you call me back into a place where my faith is outworked in all the ways that you would have it work out? Or maybe option three. It's possible that as we work this through and, and you assess your faith, you may actually realize that you haven't yet taken hold of the real deal. You haven't yet taken hold of the real deal. Maybe you've grown up in the context of ticking the Christian census box. Maybe you've kind of grown up in a Christian home and, and kind of hoped that that would just be naturally transferred to you. But as, as you see, James is gonna dig pretty deep here and there's a possibility that some may need to say, yep, that's me. And for the first time, I need to step across that line of faith and say, King Jesus, 
Won't you today fully become leader and Lord in my life? And won't you cause that double imputation of your righteousness to be placed on me as my sinfulness is placed on you? That's one of the most exciting things that happens in a Christian life at any point as you jump onto that journey in fullness and in truth. And I think we should all soberly just kind of consider which of these three options is, is most appropriate to us. For me, I'm in category two. As I was working this through, I felt a severe kick in the pants from God, right? So if that's you, you're in good company. But James goes on to give us a few examples. He gives two negative examples of, of what faith outwork doesn't look like, and then he gives us two positive examples, and I'm going to add two more to that from Scripture, two positive examples on, on, on what it looks like for faith to be well outworked in a life-giving way, and he mentions Abraham and Rahab, who both lived out their, their faith in very practical ways that the people of God could see that and could respond to that and follow that example. But before we get to the good examples, let's look at these two negative stories that James kind of points to to show what real faith doesn't look like, what it doesn't look like. The first thing it doesn't look like is lip service. Verse 15, if a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food and one of you says to them, go in peace, be warmed and filled without giving them the things, the things needed for the body, what good is that? There's this question again. See, these are Christians that are being spoken of here. Brothers and sisters, it says. People within the family of God. And he says, when this happens, they come to you, brothers and sisters in the family of God, and they have need, and you just go, bless you, bless you, be warmed. Go on your way, go in peace. James is saying, just blessing them conceptually, there's no substance to that. That's a pointless activity. Because it's not real faith in action and it doesn't change anything for those individuals. Again, what good is that? We all know this to be true, right? When words kind of sound nice towards us, but those words that sound nice towards us are not backed up with any reality, we functionally actually experience them as platitudes and they function to have a double negative. Does, is, has that been your experience? Oh, we really should get together. That's my favorite one. Eh? We really should get together. By the third time a person says, we really should get together, you go, stop being insincere. I know you're not actually going to make a plan to get together. Let me just say, this is not an invitation for everyone to say, let's do dinner, right? Okay. The reality is just that's one of the ones in spiritual community that happens all the time. It's, it's a platitude, and over time it has a, a kind of a double negative experience. Sam Albury calls this kind of person the armchair philanthropist. Do we have any armchair philanthropists in the room today? I think I can be an armchair philanthropist at times. A person who sits back in the comfort of their own home or safe place and just blesses everyone. Bless you all, right? figuratively, but they don't ever actually get up or disrupt their schedule or their plans or rustle their wallet to serve or help anyone else practically. That is an armchair philanthropist. And James is saying, no, not so with you, genuine Christ follower, not so with you. 
If you have true faith, it requires you to get up off the chair, right? Be the philanthropist, but not on the armchair. Unfortunately, I think we all know that social media has given us a whole new world of opportunity in this regard. Virtual signaling. What is that? That's when we kind of like, yes, I am against this and I'm for this. Like, like, share, share. It's like this whole new opportunity for digital hypocrisy in the realm of being armchair philanthropists because the extent of our activity is just bless you through a like, bless you through a share, but we never rustle our time, our schedules, our lives, our energies, our wallets to participate in extending true faith. James is saying that's called lip service and that's not right. That's not what the people of God are about. This is what faith outworked shouldn't look like, right? Second example, he says, when it comes to this faith being outworked, what real faith doesn't look like is when we try and divide our faith in our works. Verse 18, but someone will say, you have faith and I have works. James is imagining some person in the crowd. Remember, this is a letter, so it's not quite a dialogue. He's imagining some person in the crowd, most probably he's heard stories like this, some people kind of going, ah, oh, we have beliefy types and we have kind of survey types. And, and, and I'm more of a beliefy type, so just let me be. Don't call me to all this survey type stuff. <laughs> Jokingly, in Christian circles, we've actually got names for these people. What are they? Mary and Martha. And we're like, oh, guys, life group's busy kind of wrapping up. Oh, guys, come on, just come and hang out with us. Stop being, washing the dishes and being such Marthas. And we kind of just diminish that, right? If James was here, the reality is, is he's pushing back on this concept of separating out our faith and our works and kind of going, no, 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 I'm more of a faithy person and, and you're more of a worksy person. Let's allow each other to just be. James is not buying that. He says, you can't decouple these two important elements of our spiritual walk. It's all in one. You can't just say to Mary, be a Martha. You can't say to Martha, be a Mary. Actually, there's Mary and Martha tendencies in each of us and we need to ask God to give us wisdom and how to counter the self-indulgence in those tendencies, but also participate in stretching ourselves in the reality of what it means to be at the feet of Jesus and also participating in the work of Jesus. Show me your faith, he says. He actually places a challenge to them. This is not a, a kind of rhetorical question. I, I mean, challenge. I could put it out today. He says, show me your faith apart from works. Anybody want to venture to step up on the stage here and show us your faith apart from works? It can't be done, right? It can't be done because were you to evidence it, that's the very kind of works that James is speaking about. Recently, I've had the privilege of watching this most amazing spiritual journey in someone's life unfold. So my parents lived in America for many years. They were back in South Africa for a few years. They're back there now. But when my mom was um, most recently living in America, she was working, and she met this lovely lady. They became friends, and they kind of kept their friendship alive a little bit over long distance, and my parents were back in the States. And, and this lady experienced the tragedy of her husband walking out of, on her during, during lockdown. And as he left... 
She was quite broken and she reached out to my parents and she was looking for comfort and counsel and hope. And my parents drew alongside her and and over an amount of time, she actually came to the place where she placed her trust in Jesus for the very first time in her life. And it's been amazing to see my parents two, three, four, five times a week sometimes phoning her on the phone and over now months, almost two years, discipling her into spirituality. And I remember, and I thought of her this week when I was thinking about this because I remember my dad saying a beautiful thing happened in her life, which I think drives home James's point exactly. Is, is I remember my dad coming to me saying, after one of his phone calls and chatting uh, through things with her, he said, it's so amazing to see what's happening in her life. So often in the context of the church, you've got to say to people, these are the things you should do next. She just has got genuine faith, and so she's starting to ask me questions like, how do you tell other people about Jesus? I, I want to tell other people about Jesus. And my dad was able to share with her a little bit. And then she was asking, and, 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 and what do you guys do to help the poor? I feel like this impulse to help more people in my life. And she was asking the question. And, and then she was like, what does it mean to live Christianly, financially, Christianly? She just asked that question of my dad as he's busy discipling her. And what does it mean to to find a good church? She actually joined us online for months because this is the only context where she knew any Christians in the whole wide world. And so she was joining us online during lockdown. But then she said, what does it mean to to join a local church? Help me understand that. What does it mean to find a good church near me so that I can be counted amongst the people of God? These are all natural questions outworking of the faith that she had so genuinely and fully come into, she now started asking the kinds of questions that we would hope everyone asks as disciples. Can you see the beauty of it? James is saying if it's genuine faith, it will not be stopped from outworking itself. Does that make sense? And when we try and separate those two, we are not dealing with genuine faith. Real faith isn't lip service. And it can't be separated from its outworking from works. Now, we're going to transition. Those are the two negative examples. But we're going to transition towards his positive examples. But in between, James says one very sarcastic yet deeply insightful sentence here in verse 19. And we're going to spend a little bit of time on it because it's quite important. He says this, you believe that God is one. You do well. Even the demons believe that and shudder. Can you feel the coarseness with which he's saying that, right? Maybe he's a little bit angry with them. Maybe he's just doubling down because he loves them. Kind of the tone would suggest the former, right? You believe that God is one. You do well. Even the demons believe and shudder. Shudder. He's saying, don't congratulate yourself for for right head knowledge. Don't congratulate yourself for right head knowledge for for your faith when you're just stating the obvious, because even the demons believe that. One of the uh, commentators we've been working on through this is uh, Sam Albury. He's got this uh, commentary called James for You, and he says in this, he says, there are no atheists in the demonic realm. 
They're no atheists in the demonic realm. They know the truth too. He even goes as far as calling them orthodox. And interesting, it doesn't say, however, that they are unaffected by it. They know that God is one and they shudder. They shudder. The point is that knowing is not enough. That's what James is trying to tell us. We need faith that affects our lives and gets outworked in our lives and our actions and our responses. It should be living when it's real here and it's, it's definitely dropped to here. It should be living here in our lives. I remember in the 90s and 80s, I can't remember, 80s or 90s, sometime when I was um, growing up, I remember that kind of saying that, that, that Christians would beat each other with. That saying, if there was a judge and someone accused you of being a Christian, would there be enough evidence to prove it? Does anybody remember that? Is it just me? Nobody else remembers that, okay. I grew up in dark times, people, no, I'm joking. <laughs> But, but the reality is, I think what that causes is a whole bunch of Christians to go, oh, I better do a whole bunch more Christian-y things. Instead of kind of going, no, 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 no that, that's missing the point completely. You don't want to just do Christian-y things. You don't want to just have the Christian-y Bible verse answers. It's talking about a depth of knowing that goes beyond just cerebral sense, but it goes to a, a knowing that flows out into being. Now, there's three little words here in that sentence. You believe that God is one. I'm guessing as we just read that over, most of us didn't even register. We're kind of like, oh, you believe that God is one. You're kind of like saying, you believe that God is God, right? But for most of the Judeo-Christian people that would have heard those three words, there is vital importance. That is a, that is a very deep well that needs to be mined and plumbed. And, and we need to understand that a bit more because actually that was a part of a prayer that the Jewish people would have prayed morning and evening. The prayer called the Shema. And the Shema was this call to listen, but not just a call to listen. It was a call to listen and hear and respond, not just with part of who you are, but all of your soul, spirit, and strength. The whole of who you are, listen, hear, and respond. And for us to better understand this, we're going to watch a quick three-minute video from some of the Bible Project guys who help us understand. For thousands of years, every morning and evening, Jewish people have prayed these well-known words as a way of expressing their devotion to God. They're called the Shema. Hear, O Israel, the Lord is our God, the Lord is one. And as for you, you shall love the Lord your God with all of your heart, with all of your soul, and with all of your strength. Now, the first word of the Shema is hear or listen, which in Hebrew is pronounced Shema. That's where the prayer gets its name. Now, Shema is a really common word in the Hebrew Bible, and it's obvious why. Hearing is a very universal activity. It's usually connected with the ear, as in Proverbs chapter 20, ears that Shema and eyes that see, the Lord has made them both. Now, that seems basic enough, but if you look at the other ways that Hebrew authors can use the word Shema, they use it to mean more than just let sound waves enter your ear. In Hebrew, Shema can also mean pay attention to or focus on. So when Leah, who wasn't loved by her husband Jacob, she has a son and she names him Simon, or in Hebrew, Shimon, because she says, the Lord has Shamad, that I am unloved. 
So Shema means to hear and to pay attention to and even more. It can also mean responding to what you hear. This is why so many of the cries for help in the book of Psalms begin with a call that God listen. Psalm 27 verse 7, Shema my voice when I call, O Lord. Be merciful, answer me. So asking God to Shema is at the same time asking God to act, to do something. It's similar to when God asks people to listen. Like when the people of Israel come to Mount Sinai, God says, if you Shema me fully and keep my covenant, then out of all the nations you will be my treasured possession. Now there's a couple interesting things about this verse in Exodus. In Hebrew, the word Shema is repeated twice in this sentence to give it emphasis. If you Shema Shema, meaning listen closely. But also notice that from God's point of view, listening is basically the same as keeping the covenant. So when God asks the people to Shema, what he means is that they listen and obey. And that's the last fascinating thing about Shema. In ancient Hebrew, there is no separate word for obey, meaning to carry out the wishes of someone who knows better than you or is in authority over you. So in the Bible, if you want to say, I will listen and do what you say, you use the single word Shema. In Hebrew, listening and doing are two sides of the same coin. This is why later in Israel's history, when the people were breaking their covenant promises to God, the Hebrew prophets would say things like, they have ears, but they're not listening. The Israelites, of course, could hear just fine, but they weren't actually listening or else they would act differently. And so in the end, listening in the Bible is about giving respect to the one speaking to you and doing what they say. Real listening takes effort and action. And that's the Hebrew word Shema. Don't you love that? Hey. I mean, just three little words God is one, right? But it would have brought with it so much depth of meaning to these guys. They would have understood that as he's busy saying that, he's saying to them, hey, don't just be hearing, be listening, be responding, be acting with the fullness of your heart, soul, and strength. That is the call of the people of God. And if we just say, yeah, we're listening, but we're not doing, we're not participating, we're missing the points of, of that very important call. And the hearers, remember this is written to the, the kind of Jewish turned Christians in the dispersion in the ancient Near East. They've been spread out and they're facing many difficulties, and yet he's writing to them to remind them of who they are. And this would have called them back into what it means to be the people of, of God. Love him with all of your heart, soul, and strength. Listening and doing are seen as the same thing. James then turns his attention and he starts to provide some positive examples. And again, he, he coarsely, coarsely, very strongly tees it up with these words. Verse 20, do you wanna be shown, you foolish person? That faith apart from works is useless, is useless. He's kind of going, man, I've got to double down here. Let me make my points even stronger. And his first example is, is from scripture. It's Abraham, right? Abraham is like the Messi to soccer, soccer or the Federer to tennis. If you want to kind of call on the best possible example for the people of God of the Jewish nation, Father Abraham is your go-to guy. And he says, was not Abraham our father justified by works 
when he offered up his son Isaac on the altar? You see that faith was active along with his works. Very important. Faith was active along with his work, and faith was completed by his work. And the scripture was fulfilled that says, Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness, and he was called a friend of God. Two very important captions in that verse. His faith was active along with his works. Think about a bicycle ride. It's kind of like got two pedals. It's faith and work, and they're both kind of being moved forward, and they're creating the momentum of the, 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 the faithful person, the Christ follower, faith and work working together. Faith was active along with his works, and then faith was completed by his work. Kind of like icing on a cake, right? I think I was hungry when I came up with this analogy, but kind of like icing on a cake. When you come to the cake, what do you see? You see all the beautiful colors of the icing and the patterns, but you know that there's substance beneath this. Faith is like the substance and the icing. The icing is just the works that we're wrapping our faith in, the colorful outworking. Apologize for hungry analogies. But these are are, are positive examples. Abraham was a positive example of his faith in action and his faith in motion. And James, in many ways, is saying, hey, what does your life look like? Anything like Father Abraham? And we can take other examples and we we can place them in here, right? And we can say, yes, just like that person who outworked their faith. This week I saw a little kid outworking his faith. Kate told me about this. She was a group leader she was supporting. And you see the little dash? They were doing Ephesians 2, 8 and 9 as they were building up to Ephesians 10. And this little grade R girl goes, look, it's Ephesians 2, 8, 8 to 9. And the little boy goes, no, it's not. It's Ephesians 2, 8 minus 9. <laughs> Here he goes. He, he believed that he had the answer, right? And he was willing to tell someone else that. It's 8 minus 9. And he was clearly wrong. But the, the point is that, that he believed it and he was willing to take his stand upon that. And Kate had to just laugh and then try and help him out a little bit, Right? James caps off his point here about Abraham. He says, you see, verse 24, that a person is justified by works and not by faith alone. You see that a person is justified by works and not by faith alone. Now, if you're a Christ follower and you've been following Jesus for any amount of time and you believe in grace, this verse can cause us to shudder a little, right? Because it's so easy for us, and and we've touched on this a little bit before in James, but I want to touch on it again briefly here. I think it's vitally important that we make sure that we don't misunderstand what James is saying here. Because it can feel like when, when we take this verse and we take Romans and we put them next to each other, it can feel like there's a great contradiction in the Scriptures itself. Here in James it says, you see that a person is justified by works and not by faith alone. Romans 3.28 says, For we maintain that a person is justified by faith apart from the works of the law. Look at those two verses. They look opposed, right? And we actually don't have the time for the full word study today, but, but just I want to point out works of the law and works are not the same thing. 
And that's where key and understanding comes in for us. But let me just remind you, even without an in-depth study, that this broader section of text that we've covered today, James is calling us deeper in. He is not calling us to earn our salvation. See, he would have us evidence our salvation. He would even have us inspect our salvation. But at no point does James call us to earn our salvation. And this is vital for us. We're Protestants, right? What does that mean? It means that we are those who agree with the happenings of the great Protestant Reformation. Out of the Protestant Reformation, these five solas, these five alones came about. And the truth is that we believe that the foundation of all things is Scripture alone. And we believe that it is by grace alone that we are saved through faith alone, in Christ alone, ultimately for His glory alone. Those are the five solas that, that we as, as Protestant uh, Christ followers give ourselves to. And it's so important that Christ alone, through faith alone, by grace alone, is the foundation of everything that we believe. And at no point is James counter, con contradicting that. He's just saying, if you have been saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, it should be the kind of thing that naturally starts to well out of you, and that is called the works that evidence your faith. Make sense? We could teach a lot more on this. We don't have time today. But Romans 1 reminds us that the power of God for salvation the power of God for salvation, the gospel is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. Everyone who believes. That's how we're able to have a murderer on either side of Jesus and one of them in that moment welcomed into eternity with him. Luke 23 says this, one of the criminals who were hanged, who were hanged next to Jesus railed at him saying, are you not the Christ? Save yourself and us. But the other rebuked his fellow criminal, saying, do you not fear God, since you are under the same sentence of condemnation? And we indeed justly, for we are receiving the due reward for our deeds. But this man has done nothing wrong. And he said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And Jesus said to him, truly I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise. What has works got to do with this man's salvation? No, his faith towards Jesus is what sees him saved, even as Jesus is busy achieving the full and final saving work upon the cross. But don't think that there aren't works present. Think about his words. This man is an evangelist. He's like, well, he's an evangelist. One, he, he, he kind of takes this guy on. Do you not fear God? And this man is innocent. Even in his words, it is a form of works. He is, he is, he's living out the deep faith which he has. And Jesus, in that moment, recognizes the evidence of his faith as he reaches out to King Jesus and he says, today, you will be with me in paradise. In a sense, no time for work. He's already pegged there, right? But even his words become works of evidence of the outworking of his faith. Let's look at the second positive example of faith expressed 
in this passage, and it's Rahab, right? Verse 25, in the same way, was not also Rahab the prostitute justified by works when she received the messengers and sent them out by another way? Remember, the spies are sent to Jericho to spy out the city. You can read the story in Joshua chapter two. The thing that always confuses me is why they were sleeping at the prostitute's house. Nobody actually comments on that in the scriptures, but God has his way of busting everybody. Doesn't say there was no room in the rest of the inns, but they were sleeping at the prostitute's house. And God has his way of busting everybody because the whole nation becomes aware of where they were sleeping because she gets saved, right? Those guys get in trouble. But the main point is this, God chooses to save this prostitute Canaanite woman who was not counted as the people of God through his grace and mercy, but uh, upon what? The evidence of her faith. She actually declares some amazing things about God. You can go read it in Joshua chapter two. But then she also doesn't just declare these things about God, she risks her very own life to save these two spies and to sneak them out of the city. Her declaration of faith and her actions, both are positive examples that James is drawing our attention to here. One of my other favorites is when Jesus is busy teaching and and the four men dig a hole in the roof. Imagine I'm busy teaching right now and four guys start pulling the roof open, right? And they, and they, they lower their paralyzed friend down into the midst of the teaching. Just think about that chaos for a moment, right? And Jesus, without even having them say a word, looks at, it, looks at them in the scriptures say, and seeing their faith. And seeing their faith, God responds. Jesus responds. See, it doesn't take the proclamation, it doesn't take the action of the, I mean, the asking and the, and the, and the request. God just responds to faith in people's lives. The outworking of the reality, the depth of faith, causes them to dig a hole in a roof where the teacher is teaching and lower their friends. Sam Albury says this as I close. Real faith is not merely sentimental, sentimental wishing someone well while doing nothing to help them. It's not merely creedal, affirming something to be true, but which makes no difference to the way we live. Such things may be something, but they are not Christianity. Stas Nasi into the very last verse. For as the body apart from the spirit is dead, so also faith apart from works is dead. What good is it? What good is it? I think James has made his points in this section of text over and over again. I trust the Spirit has made his points in our, our lives today. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, just so mindful of Thessalonians, the scripture that calls us to to rebuke the idle, but to help the weak. God, I pray that for all of us in this room who upon honest reflection can rightfully say, Lord, I think I may be idle in matters of expressing my faith. I pray, Father, that we would receive from heaven your loving rebuke today. 
that we would receive your correction and, and, and your attention and, and your discipline. Because God, we know that a father whose heart is filled with love corrects his children into life and godliness, into the fullness of the pleasures of all that he has and his much more is for us. God, at the same time, you say that we should help the weak. And I would pray, God, if there are those who amongst us today feel weak, weakened by circumstances, weakened by disappointments, weakened by maybe even a lack of faith at play in their lives and times, I pray, God, that, that you would see them returning to Christ, returning to his mercy seat and receiving from heaven all that is needed to be strengthened and fortified. Scriptures tell us we do well not to rebuke the weak and strengthen the idol. So God, would you cause us to do right work before you, King Jesus, today? Come and lead us. Come and guide us. Come and have your way in us. May the truth of what we proclaim be evidenced by the lives that we live. May we not be found wanting in this regard. May we represent you well. Pray this all in your beautiful name, Jesus. Amen. Amen. Let's stand together. We're going to sing one final song.